the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of night. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light of God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to be able to visit with you by radio. I consider it a real privilege to come to you, wherever you are, with another message from God's Holy Word. Today I'm continuing with the series of messages that I call Speaking with Tongues. We're reviewing all the scriptures that deal with this controversial doctrine in order to determine the true teaching of God's Word. We've just come to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and we're considering his introduction to this letter before we go on to the three chapters that deal specifically with the spiritual gifts. Let's open today's message by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them which are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you in peace, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf, for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians came behind in no gift simply because God, in his sovereignty, had given the gifts so that his work could be carried on effectively in the city of Corinth. The saved ones in that church were not on a high level of spirituality. They had not separated themselves from their former heathen habits. Through selfish pride, they were abusing the gifts that God had given. But still, the Holy Spirit poured out abundantly the spiritual manifestations so that these believers came behind in no gift. These gifts were to be used in carrying out the Lord's great commission during this age. They were to be used while all that in every place that call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord are waiting for the coming, the revelation, of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of this present age. In spite of words of rebuke that Paul had to send to the addressees of his letter because of their improper moral conduct, he still writes to them, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? The Holy Spirit indwells each and all of God's children, God's saved ones, regardless of the nature of their daily walk. At the moment of salvation, he comes to baptize the saved one into the body of Christ and to indwell that one from the moment of salvation on. This is not done by a subsequent work of grace or by the pleading and tarrying of the new believer. It's a work of God that accompanies initial salvation. After Paul has already stated that the Spirit of God dwells in all those to whom his letter is addressed, he continues to point out some of the things that are wrong in the lives of individual Corinthian believers. There was lewd and lascivious conduct among saved members of the Corinthian church. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Paul states that he had previously warned these Christians not to engage in such practice or to permit it within the church. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. These Corinthian Christians were suing one another in earthly courts of law. Paul had to rebuke them for this. Dare any of you having a matter against another to go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? The Corinthian Christians were overeating and overdrinking. 
There were those among them who were engaging the services of Corinthian prostitutes. Paul found need to remind them, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. As the letter continues, Paul is forced to bring up and rebuke other acts of immorality that were being practiced among this group of Christians. Yet in spite of all this, he had said in the beginning of this letter, so that ye come behind in no gift. God had not withheld his gifts because of the shortcomings of the members of the local assembly. The reason that he had not is that these spiritual manifestations were not given as rewards for spirituality, but rather they were given in order that the members might carry out the work that God had assigned to them. Therefore, it was necessary for Paul to explain what the Spirit's gifts were, the attitude in which they were to be administered, how they were to function in the formal church meetings, and what constitutes abuse of these gifts. He begins his detailed discussion of this matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1. Now concerning the spirituals, the spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not that you la be lacking in knowledge. I would not that ye be ignorant. As Paul introduces the subject to be discussed, he refers to the outward manifestations of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. A part of the questions from the Corinthian assembly had dealt with the source, purpose, and practical usage of the spiritual gifts which had been poured out abundantly upon this group. Paul was now about to address himself to those questions. Now concerning the spiritual manifestations, brethren, I would not have you lacking in knowledge. Paul addresses the recipients of his letter as brethren. He accepted them as brothers, true Christians. He, even though many were wayward in their Christian lives, they still knew the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Both the author and the addressees of this letter were brothers in Christ. The Corinthian Christians had recognized that many spiritual gifts were being displayed among their numbers, but they also realized that some of the displays were not in harmony with the general well-being and order of the church. These discordant notes were becoming more numerous, and the work of the assembly was being disrupted. This is why they had asked the apostle to clarify his teachings concerning such phenomena. That's why Paul says, I would not have you to be lacking in knowledge concerning this most serious matter. You know that you were Gentiles, and that word is used here means pagans. You know that you were pagans, carried away under these dumb idols, even as you were led. Paul first introduced the subject of spiritual manifestations, and then he reminded the Corinthian Christians of their background. These men and women had seen and experienced spiritual manifestations while they were yet pagans, before the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ had changed their lives. But these former spiritual manifestations seen in the heathen temples of Corinth came from a spiritual source entirely different from that of the spiritual gifts of the church. Many times the Corinthians had observed the workings of supernatural power during those days of idol worship, and they knew that spiritual manifestations were not unique to their Christian experience. They suspected that some of the disrupting influence in their church meetings came from those powers of darkness, demon spirits, that had previously confined their operations to the heathen temples. Ye remember well that ye were heathen idol worshippers, carried away, led away, unto these non-speaking idols, even as ye were led, carried without power or resistance. The Greek words that Paul uses here for carried away and were led are both forms of the verb apago. This word refers to external powers that were able to take control of idol worshipers and to produce external demonstrations of their presence. The spiritual powers that stood behind Corinthian idols were demons. Paul is definitely reminding these Corinthians that they have previously seen and experienced demon activities through human personalities. The apostle's meaning is, you have experienced demon manifestations in your days of idol worship, and you should recognize that some of the spiritual powers working among you now come from the same source. Satan is counterfeiting the gifts of God's Holy Spirit, and his purpose is to disrupt the orderly proceedings of the assembly. Because of the presence of the counterfeit gifts, 
it was necessary that Paul supply criteria for distinguishing between the false and the true. He says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Many of the speeches being delivered in the formal assemblies of the Corinthian church, both in the common Greek language, prophecies, and in other languages of the world, tongues, were delivered under the power of spiritual beings separate from the human speaker. To identify the spiritual source, it was necessary to listen to and understand the words that were spoken. The criterion for identifying the source were the things said concerning Jesus Christ. If the speaker said disparaging things against the Lord Jesus, then the spiritual power controlling that voice could not be the Holy Spirit of God. If Jesus were called accursed, then the assembly was hearing a demon. On the other hand, if the speaker called Jesus Lord, the Greek kurios, used in the sense of implying deity to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the spiritual source of that manifestation most definitely was the Holy Spirit. No demon spirit could refer to Jesus Christ as Lord, and the Holy Spirit could not call him accursed. That which was said regarding the divine Son of God would always identify the spiritual source of the, of the demonstration being observed. After giving these criteria for distinguishing true outward manifestations of the Holy Spirit from outward manifestations of demon spirits, then Paul continued with a further description of the true gifts. Now there are diversities, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a number of ways that the Holy Spirit manifests His presence outwardly. He gives many gifts, but He's the one single source of all the true spiritual gifts. There are no associate spirits who help him in his earthly ministry. All true spiritual gifts come from the third person of the Godhead. The giving of gifts is a part of his special residential ministry in the earth during this age. We should understand that God's Holy Spirit does not always manifest himself in the same way, just as the Lord did not always and at all times minister in the earth in the same way. Paul says, and even as there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Throughout past ages, God the Son has had many administrations in the earth. He had one administration to Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall. That administration changed after Adam's sin and the pronouncement of the curse. He had an administration to the men and women of the pre-flood world. He had a different administration in the earth at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. He, as the angel of Jehovah, had a different administration during the call of Abraham and the chosen nation Israel. The prophet Micah referred to him as the one whose goings forth, that is, whose ministries, whose administrations, were from of old, from everlasting. He began a different administration when he took on the flesh of humanity to become our kinsman redeemer. His administration changed again at the time of his ascension to become our high priest at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But through all these administrations, he was the same Lord. He himself did not change. He's the unchangeable God. I see that my time is gone for today. We'll continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on the next broadcast of this series of messages on speaking with tongues. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing our series of messages on the subject, Speaking with Tongues. Our goal is to consider all those scriptures that deal with this subject, and thus to determine the true biblical teaching on a highly controversial doctrine. Let's open today's message by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man, speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, 
to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and another discerning of spirits, to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. This letter to the Corinthian church was a part of some continuing correspondence between the Apostle Paul and that church. Much of the letter is used to reply to inquiries concerning both doctrinal and practical points. Paul opened the previous section of this letter with the words, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. After that he proceeded to reply to a variety of questions that had come to him from the Corinthian assembly. Most of these earlier questions had dealt with matters of practical morality in Christian living. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, we have the beginning of a new section. Now concerning the spirituals, the words spiritual gifts are translated from a single Greek noun, which is pneumaticon. The literal meaning of this word is spirituals. It refers to outward manifestations of the power and presence of an invisible spiritual personality. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they had been pagans and that they had seen spiritual manifestations in the days of their idol worship. Therefore, they should understand that there were demon spirits who could counterfeit God's gifts. They were to test these manifestations that they were experiencing to determine what was of God and what was of Satan. Just as there are differences of administrations but the same Lord, there also are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. During all of his administrations in the earth, God the Son had many different means of operating his ministry. Nevertheless, he was still the same God. He was the God of creation, and he is the God of administration. It is he who worketh, accomplishes, all, everything is of God, in all, everyone who experiences the power of God in their lives. Therefore, we should expect that one Holy Spirit would be the source of a variety of gifts poured out on the children of God for the accomplishing of God's work in this world. What is the purpose of the pouring out of these spiritual gifts or manifestations? Paul answers that question in verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. The only purpose for bestowing a spiritual gift upon anyone is that all the assembly might profit by that gift. Gifts are never given simply to gratify the vanity of the ones who receive them. A gift is never given as a reward for spiritual living. God's Holy Spirit does not give out gifts because one has asked for the gift. He does not give a gift as proof that some particular work of grace has been performed in a life. He gives the gifts for the profit of the entire assembly and therefore the entire church and for no other purpose. Paul then proceeds to give examples of some of the gifts that the Spirit does give to profit with all. In verse 8 we read, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Again, the source is the same, although the gifts are different. One may receive the word of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge in order to accomplish a purpose. The ability to wisely apply the word of God is a spiritual gift. Knowledge of God's word is also a gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift is given to those who are to teach in the assembly. The gifts of wisdom and knowledge may not be bestowed upon the same recipient, but it is the same Spirit of God who gives both of these gifts. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Faith is also a spiritual gift. The apostle is not here referring to saving faith, the faith that allows one to respond to the gospel and thus receive eternal salvation. That also is a gift of God, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, but that is not the spiritual manifestation of faith. Paul is referring to that faith which allows one to depend upon God for everything under all circumstances. This kind of faith is truly a direct manifestation of the presence of God's Spirit in a life. Healing is also a spiritual gift. This refers to the ability to heal the sick. 
the Holy Spirit did bestow the power to miraculously heal the sick upon certain believers in the early church. This was primarily an apostolic gift, but it did extend to some of the other disciples. God still bestows that gift, but now he does it through the healing skills of trained physicians. A Christian doctor is actually manifesting the Spirit's presence when he applies his skills to the healing of patients. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, divers kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretations of tongues. Miracles are events or happenings that defy the laws of nature. Two kinds of miracles are reported in Scripture. The first kind are those happenings that are contrary to natural law. The dividing and the stacking of the waters of the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus is an example of this kind of miracle. The other kind is not contrary to the laws of nature, but rather they are contrary to the laws of probability. Such happenings are not impossible, but they are highly unlikely to occur at the time and in the manner which they are brought about. The turning of King Ahasuerus' attention to the records of the kingdom on the night before Mordecai was to be hanged in Esther chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 is a miracle of this second type. The spiritual gift of the working of miracles was primarily an apostolic gift, but it also was extended to certain others in the early church. Prophecy is the supernatural ability to speak the words of God. This is the gift of the preacher. In the days before the completion of the New Testament, God gave his word directly to the prophet. In our day, the prophet obtains God's word from the completed written source, the Bible. Discerning of spirits is the ability to recognize the supernatural source of a spiritual manifestation. Paul had previously given criteria for distinguishing between the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and of demon spirits. This was for the general knowledge of all Christians. However, one of the spiritual gifts was a supernatural ability to know and to recognize a specific source of spiritual power. This gift is still present among Christians today. In his continued listing of the spiritual gifts, Paul says, to another, divers kinds of tongues, glosson, to another, the interpretation, understanding, translation of tongues, glosson. The word for tongues here is a plural form of the Greek glossa. Glossa refers to the organ of the mouth that we call the tongue. This word is used at other places in the New Testament to refer to that member of the body. Just as our word tongue, glossa also refers to a language, a human language spoken by man. It's further used to refer to a nation or a people distinguished by their language. Glossa is the root from which we get our English term glossary, which means a word list or a language. This word contains no thoughts of an unknown language, but it always refers to languages spoken by men. The giving of the ability to speak in a human language that had never been learned by the speaker was a spiritual gift. It's a gift given to equip evangelists for the preaching of the gospel to all men regardless of language spoken. It was God's antidote to Babel. It was at Babel that all people of the earth came together in a joint rebellion against God. There, God confused the languages. This was done to restrict communication among men in order to make it more difficult for Satan to establish totalitarian control over the entire world. The spread of evil and apostasy was slowed by changing the languages. However, at the beginning of the new age, God gave a marvelous gift of tongues to permit messengers of God to communicate to all men the marvelous message of God's grace. That gift was first exercised at Pentecost, again when witnesses were sent out to the Samaritans, again when the message was given to the Gentiles, and once again when Jews in dispersion were given the completed gospel. After that, the gift of tongues was given to individuals chosen by the Holy Spirit for individual witness to people of other languages. Many of the church at Corinth had received this gift. The Spirit of God also provided a companion gift. To some were given the interpretation of tongues. This was a marvelous ability to understand and translate languages that had never been learned. This gift also permitted communication among all men of the earth. 
Human language, both the ability to speak and the ability to understand, is a gift of God. Paul emphasizes that the early gifts, manifestations of the Spirit, included God's antidote to Babel. But all these work at that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Paul has listed a variety of gifts that were given as spiritual manifestations for the early church. He now assures all his readers that it is one Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, who is the source of all these gifts. The gifts manifest God working through man. The one omnipotent, omniscient Holy Spirit is the selfsame Spirit who is the dynamic behind all these manifestations. He's the distributor of the gifts. A part of his present earthly ministry is the dividing to every man severally as he will. He distributes God's gifts to individual believers according to his own will. Some believers may receive only one gift. Others may receive several. But all are given not through the pleading of the individual, not because of the spirituality of the individual, not because of the pride of the individual, but rather as he will. God is sovereign, and the Holy Spirit of God bestows the gifts according to his own will. The distribution is according to God's infinite wisdom, so that every man, every believer may profit with all. It's contrary to Scripture to teach that men should seek the gifts of the Spirit. Nowhere does God give any instructions for such seeking. God's Word emphasizes that God Himself makes all decisions concerning the bestowing of the spiritual gifts. Modern groups that teach that God would have individuals to seek after spiritual gifts are going counter to God's Word. My time is gone for today. We'll continue our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to be able to visit with you by radio with another message from God's Word. We're continuing with the series of messages that I call Speaking with Tongues. In this series, we're considering those passages of Scripture that deal with this subject. Our purpose is to determine the true teachings of God's Word on this most controversial subject. We're now studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 21. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing with our study of the subject, Speaking with Tongues. On the last broadcast, we considered the Apostle Paul's introduction of the one body, the church, that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's continue that discussion. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. 
for our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Nay, much more these members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, are necessary. If we were to analyze the functions of the various parts of our own bodies, we might decide that the muscle that moves our small toe is quite weak, and therefore really unnecessary. However, if that muscle were removed, we would find our abilities to walk and even to stand were impaired. Even the weakest parts of our body are necessary. Otherwise, God would not have placed them in the body. If we were to evaluate our church congregation, we might decide that a certain member who stays in the background and doesn't take a prominent part in the ministries of the assembly is weak and unnecessary. However, if he were removed from the congregation, we would find our church functions impaired. Perhaps this one had the gift for intercessory prayer, and he had been fervently exercising that gift. When his prayers were deleted, the work of the church would not meet with the same degree of success. All those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. We have a tendency, when we think certain parts of the human body are receiving less praise than they should, to heap more praise upon those parts. It's usually the parts that are serving a purely cosmetic function that we tend to evaluate in this way and to supply a greater measure of honor. Paul says that in God's evaluation of our non-cosmetic, uncomely parts often have greater beauty than our purely cosmetic parts. A young lady might think that the beautiful contours and tones of the flesh of her face should receive greater honor, but God might believe that the hand that holds the cool cloth to bathe the face of the sick is really more to be honored than the face. This principle also applies to the body of Christ. One member may be quite prominent and quite pleasing to the congregation in his appearance. The congregation may have a tendency to heap more honors upon that one but some other member, less in the foreground, but much more active in the work of Christ, might be more deserving of such honors. For our comely parts have no need. Paul is actually saying, for our purely cosmetic parts have very little real usefulness. This applies to those church members who serve a purely cosmetic function in the assembly. They also often have very little real usefulness. But God hath tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. God has designed the human body so that those parts which have little cosmetic beauty are really the most useful parts. Similarly, God the Holy Spirit has designed the church body so that the non-cosmetic members serve more useful functions than those who have nothing to offer but their nice appearance. Why has God designed the church body in this way? Paul answers that question. That there should be no schisms no divisions, no rips in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. God has designed the church body in this way to avoid rips and tears within the unified assembly. It's his desire that the church not be divided because of jealousies and bickerings among the individual members. He desires that each member should have loving concern for all the other members. We wouldn't like our human body parts to be fighting among themselves for recognition to the extent that our body would actually be torn apart. God doesn't want a similar problem in the church body. We could see what would happen if our body was literally tearing itself apart. When a part was damaged, that part would feel pain. But it's not the only part that feels the pain. The entire body will suffer. Similarly, when a member of Christ's body is hurt, whether it be from internal strife or from external blows, all parts of the body suffer. We've been made one unit by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, one part of this unit cannot suffer pain without the entire body feeling it. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. When the member of the church receives honor, 
Actually, the entire church has been honored also. If someone has a compliment for our beautiful or handsome face, that compliment is actually given to our entire body. The one who did the complimenting does not really separate our face from the remainder of our body. One member of the church is just as inseparable from the other members as is our face from our body. When a member is honored, the entire church is also honored. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Paul will now apply his illustration. He tells all Christians in general, and the Corinthian assembly of his day in particular, that the example applies directly to them. You are the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the cosmetic parts, and the non-cosmetic parts of the body of Christ. All of you together make up the body of Christ, and each of you, as individuals, are the specific parts of that body. What are some of the ways in which the members or parts of the body of Christ differ? They differ because of the offices and gifts that have been bestowed by the Holy Spirit as He will. It's God and God only who has decided those that are to occupy the offices and receive the specific and particular equipment necessary to accomplish the work of that office. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles. The office of the apostle was the highest office of the church. The word apostle means one sent on a mission. The apostles were those whom Christ himself personally commissioned to preach his gospel in the earth. Only 13 men ever occupied this office. These were the original 12 and the Apostle Paul. That was the first office of the church, and the office was never filled after the passing of those who initially occupied it. Secondarily, prophets. The second office of the church was that of prophet. This office is defined in the Old Testament, and it was the office of the one who spoke the words of God. Before the completion of God's written word, the completion of our New Testament, there were men whom God gave his word directly, and their office was to preach this word directly to the congregation. With the completion of the New Testament, God's prophet receives his word from the scriptures rather than by direct revelation. We have prophets in the church today, and they are still those who proclaim the word of God. Prophets are God's spokesmen. Anyone who has the ability to proclaim the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit has been set in the office of prophet. Thirdly, teachers. The third church office was that of teacher. This office was occupied by those whom God the Holy Spirit had miraculously made apt to teach the doctrines of his word. Those who filled this office had been equipped of God to profit the assembly through expounding the things of God. After that, miracles. Literally, that means works of power. Then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues, languages, or on. Paul lists only three offices before he turns to list certain manifestations of the Spirit's power which had been divinely given to help in the work of the assembly. It's obvious that these manifestations were given through individual believers in the church. Beyond the three offices named, the Holy Spirit had given specific members the ability to do works of power. This means that the power of God was manifest directly through them in the performance of miracles. Such power had been given to every man to profit with all, not for the glory of that individual. This ability made each member who received it a unique part in the body of Christ. The ability to perform such works of power is not labeled as a gift. Following his mention of works of power, Paul proceeds to list four bestowals of the Holy Spirit that are labeled as charismata, or gifts. These are healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues, and again, that word means languages. It's the Greek glosson. Healings refers to the ability to heal the sick and the infirm. Probably some of the members of the Corinthian church had manifested this gift in a miraculous way, although the gift is listed separately from the manifestation called miracles. However, the manifestation of this gift does not always bring about an obvious display of supernatural power. God can and does give the gift of healings to skilled physicians and medical men. After the first century, this gift has been confined primarily to such men. 
helps refers to an ability to minister to those in need on a personal basis. Such gifted church members can help other members with temporal problems, with emotional problems, with doctrinal problems, and with physical handicaps. This has been a most useful gift down through the centuries of the church age. Governments refers to a supernaturally given ability to rule over the church body. The trustees of a local church have been given this gift. They are able to take care of the business matters of the church. They are able to prepare the constitutions and bylaws for governing a local church and to administer them. Lastly, Paul lists under the charismata a gift that he calls diversities or kinds of tongues. Some members of the Corinthian assembly had been given the gift to speak in languages that they had never learned. This was not just a single unlearned language because the word gena, kinds, diversities, is plural. The same gift that had been exercised by the apostles at Pentecost had also been bestowed upon certain ones of this assembly. This gift was given so that they might fulfill the needs of specific functions in the one body. My time is gone for today. We'll continue with our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad that you've tuned in today as we continue with our study of speaking with tongues. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. On the last broadcast, we considered the Apostle Paul's discussion of the one body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. To open today's message, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 29 through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a templing cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. After making clear that God had gifted different members in different ways, and that not all members held the same office or received the same means of manifestation, then Paul asked a series of six questions. By what has been said previously, the expected answer to every question is in the negative. He asks, Are all apostles? No, certainly not. Only 13 men ever held the office of apostle in the body of Christ. All to whom this letter is directed should know the answer to that question. Are all prophets? Again, no. Not all had been given the ability and authority to act as God's spokesman. Only those who could proclaim the word of God in power were prophets. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Not all of the Corinthian Christians had this ability, and certainly not all members of the church today can do works of power. Have all the gifts of healing? Obviously no. Do all speak with tongues, unlearned languages? Again, obviously no. All to whom this epistle is addressed had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to verse 13, but all did not speak in glosson. Speaking with tongues was not a required manifestation of either salvation or the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Paul's day. Neither is it a required sign of either of these things in our day. Do all interpret, that is, do all translate. The reference is to the unlearned tongues that were miraculously spoken by some members of the congregation. There were some who had been given the ability to understand the languages spoken by certain members of the assembly. However, not all translated, just as not all spoke the foreign tongues. When he had emphasized that all members of the congregation were not to be expected to display the same manifestations of the Spirit's power, Paul makes a statement that tells us of another problem within the Corinthian assembly. 
This same problem is present among assemblies today who profess to possess and utilize certain of the charismatic gifts. The first clause of verse 31 is not an imperative, that is, it's not a command, as it would appear from our English translation, but rather it's a statement of fact. You are coveting earnestly the best gifts. The Corinthian Christians had placed their own evaluation upon the spiritual gifts being displayed among them, and each one was coveting to have what he considered the best of them. The more spectacular gifts, the ones that drew the most attention from other members of the congregation, were the gifts evaluated as the best. The ability to speak in an unlearned language, the ability to work miracles, and the ability to heal had become coveted gifts. Many of the members wanted those particular gifts because of personal pride of accomplishment. You are coveting earnestly the best gifts, says Paul. The Holy Spirit does not give gifts in order to satisfy the pride of men. Gifts were given for the profit of the assembly and for no other reason. God could not condone the conduct of these Corinthian believers. They were not exercising the spiritual manifestations with the proper motive. That's why that Paul goes on to say, And yet show I unto you a more excellent, that is, a more surpassing way. There was a much more excellent motivation for the usage of those abilities that the Holy Spirit miraculously bestowed. This statement is an introduction to that which follows. Paul therefore introduced the material of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 by the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He had told the Corinthian assembly, you are coveting earnestly the best gifts, the best charismata, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. It's not God's desire that his people covet those charismata, that is, gifts, the spiritual bestowals, that are, in their evaluation, the best. To covet something is to desire it for selfish purposes. The one who covets something wants to possess it so that he can be lifted up in pride. Coveting the best gifts will lead to exercising them for the wrong purposes once they are bestowed. Therefore, Paul says, And yet show I unto you a more excellent, a more surpassing way. Spiritual manifestations are not to be utilized for selfish motives. There is a much better, a more surpassing way, a better motive than selfishness. That motivation is the opposite of selfishness. It's the totally unselfish love for the brethren that is bestowed only upon regenerated, born-again children of God. The Greek word for this kind of love is agape. That is the Greek word translated charity throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle John insists that this kind of love comes directly from God and only God's own can know it. He says, Beloved, let us love agapomen, let us love one another, for love, agape, is of God. And every one that loveth, agapon, is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, may agapon, knoweth not God, for God is love, agape. The charity, agape, that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the same love, agape, that John says God is. It's the same agape that God displayed when he so loved Agapason, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's only with the motivation of Agape that the Charismata should ever be exercised. The Apostle to the Gentiles makes it clear that he is speaking of motivations as he opens his discussion of the more excellent way. He uses himself as an example when he writes, If with the tongues, glosaeus, of men I speak, and of angels, but love, agapon, have not, I have become sounding brass, or a cymbal clanging. This is an exact, literal, and correct word order translation of Paul's original Greek. He says that it matters not in what language he speaks, he's referring to exercising, exercising the gift of tongues, if he's doing it without the motivation of agape. Then the sound of his voice makes no sense at all. He will accomplish just as much if he blows discordant notes on a trumpet or if he makes clanging sounds on a cymbal. 
The gift is useless if it is not exercised with the proper motivation. That motivation is totally unselfish love for and a desire to help those who are his listeners. In opening this statement, Paul speaks of the tongues of men and of angels. In the Greek word order, the verb comes between the phrases that describe the subject, which is tongues. He says, if with the tongues of men I speak and of angels. The conjunction and is translated from the Greek word chai. This is a coordinating conjunction that can be translated either and or even, depending upon context and sentence word order. By placing the verb between the two prepositional phrases, Paul has equated these two subject modifiers. Therefore, the chai should carry a translation of even. His words are, if with the tongues of men I speak, even of angels. The two phrases are referring to a single subject. The same languages are spoken by both men and angels. Earthly languages are spoken in heaven. There are passages in scripture that strongly suggest that the common language of angels is biblical Hebrew. The angels who spoke to John in the book of Revelation gave all proper names in the Hebrew tongue. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1 is the only passage in scripture that mentions a language of heaven. Because of this verse, many have believed that angels speak an exotic heavenly language and that the unknown tongues, using the King James Version translation of the Greek glosson, mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is a reference to these heavenly languages. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1 has become the authority for the ecstatic utterances that many today voice as they exercise the so-called gift of tongues. This verse grants no such authority. Paul says, No matter what language or languages I use, even if my knowledge of these languages was gained supernaturally, if I am not motivated by unselfish love for the brethren, then I accomplish nothing and I become a source of irritation to my hearers. Exotic and ecstatic utterances before an assembly of believers is just as irritating and as pointless as blowing meaningless notes on a brass musical instrument or banging on a cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but love have not, nothing I am. Again, this is a literal translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2. Paul does not refer to the gift of prophecy, but simply to all prophecy. Still using himself as an example, the apostle says that it matters not how much information that he has to convey to others or how much faith he has in his heart if he is not motivated by God-given agape, he is but a big zero. He may have been supernaturally given a quotation from God's word, that is a prophecy. He may have complete understanding of all things of God that have not been previously revealed, all mysteries. He may have a complete collection of all known facts stored in his mind, all knowledge, and with this be so devoted to God that his faith could cause the moving of mountains, a reference to the Lord's promise of Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. He is useless to the brethren if his ministry to them is through personal pride rather than charity, agape. God cannot use nor evaluate as good any works of man that are not properly motivated. And if I give away in food all my goods, and if I deliver up my body that I may be burned, but love have not, nothing I am profited. Paul says that he could be a great humanitarian even to the extent of having all his worldly goods converted into food and giving it to the poor, or though he became a great martyr and offered his body to be burned at the stake, if he did this just to attract the attention of men and not because of unselfish love for the brethren, then he would gain no heavenly profit from it. God has no use for the show-off. Again, God can only evaluate as good those things that are done with proper motivation. The only proper motivation is charity, agape. My time is gone for today. We'll consider further Paul's discussion of charity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue our study of speaking in tongues on the next broadcast. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. 
Today we're continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we go on with our study of speaking with tongues. This is a most important message because it's in these verses that Paul speaks of the temporary nature of this particular spiritual manifestation. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 11. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. In verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul actually personifies charity, love, or agape, in order that he may describe the characteristics of this intangible quality. In doing this, he is actually using the word agape as a title for the one who is eternal love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the Proverbs personify the quality wisdom. There also this word becomes a title for the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Although Paul is describing the intangible attribute of charity, he's also describing our Savior and Redeemer. We could substitute the words, the Lord Jesus Christ, each place where the word charity appears, and we would have a correct description of him. The Lord Jesus Christ suffereth long and is kind. The Lord Jesus Christ envieth not. The Lord Jesus Christ vaunteth him not himself, is not puffed up, doth not behave himself unseemly, seeketh not his own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This is our description of the God-man. If we're motivated by agape in all things we do, then we also still reflect these qualities. This is what charity, love, agape is. Agape suffereth long. Love has patience. One motivated by charity does not become impatient. Agape is also kind, that is, benevolent, well-disposed, shows tenderness. Kindness becomes a characteristic of those motivated by charity. Charity envieth not. Love is not the source of envy. It's only generated by selfishness, the opposite of agape. Charity vaunteth not itself. Love is not vainglorious. Agape does not seek its own pride of life, but rather seeks to lift up others. Charity is not puffed up. Agape does not contribute to the self-image of the one who possesses it. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Agape does not make one a boor. Love seeketh not her own. Agape has no selfish motivations. Agape looks only to the needs of others. Charity is not easily provoked. Agape does not allow easy or quick anger on the part of the one who possesses it. Tempers are restrained in those who are motivated by this kind of love. Agape thinketh no evil. Love reckons not evil. Charity is not the source of malice. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Agape cannot rejoice at unrighteousness, because unrighteousness is not of God. Agape can rejoice with the truth because all truth comes from God. Only the things of God are promoted in a positive way by the possessor of agape. Charity beareth all things. Agape covers or atones for all things. With this kind of love as a covering, all human failures are hidden from sight. Deficiencies in the life of the possessor of charity do not show through the covering of agape. Charity believeth all things. Agape puts trust in all things, all things of God. The possessor of unselfish love believes all things of God's word. Because of this, agape hopeth all things. Charity definitely expects the fulfillment of all of the promises of God's word. 
The Greek, elpise, translated hope, refers not just to a hope as we use the word, but rather to a definite expectancy. Charity results in total faith in God for the fulfillment of all things written in his word. Agape endureth all things. Charity is content in all circumstances, knowing that God is in control and that he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The possessor of agape is never upset by the trials and tribulations encountered in this earthly life. Paul's personified description of charity is followed by a statement of its enduring nature as compared to certain of the spiritual charismata that the Corinthian Christians had been coveting earnestly. Love, agape, never fails. But whether prophecies, they shall be done away. Whether tongues, and the word there is glossia, they shall cease. Whether knowledge, it shall be done away. Agape will never cease to be poured out from God's throne. Throughout this age, the age to come, and on through eternity, charity will still be manifest among God's children. It is not a temporary gift of God, but rather it's a permanent outpouring of the very nature of God himself. It will never fail. But not so some of the other spiritual manifestations. But whether prophecies, they shall be done away. They shall be stopped. From Paul's first century viewpoint, there was a future time coming when the miraculous gift of receiving and quoting God's word for a congregation would no longer come as an outshowing of the power of the Holy Spirit. This letter was written in the year A.D. 54, long before the New Testament was completed. In those days, God's word was given to the assemblies directly through those who had received the office of prophet. The miraculous gift of prophecy would have served its purpose when God's written word was completed. This happened approximately 42 years after this letter was written when the Apostle John completed the book of Revelation, which was about A.D. 96. Whether tongues, languages, they shall cease. The English words, they shall cease, are translated from a one-word Greek verb, which is posantai. This is a reflexive verb, and it literally means shall cease of themselves. The miraculous gift of speaking and understanding languages that had never been learned would serve its purpose in the early church. When there was no further need for it, it would cease of itself. There were no missionary schools in Paul's day where Christian men and women could go to learn the languages of the peoples to whom they were called to witness. Therefore God equipped his call servants for the commission that he had given them. One of the ways in which he did this was to neutralize the effects of Babel and provide miraculous language abilities. But when the age had proceeded to the point where these skills could be obtained by ordinary human means, the gift of tongues would pass into oblivion. Please note, it's the miraculous gift of speaking unlearned languages that was to cease of itself. It was not the languages of the world that were to cease. Paul is not saying that the world will no longer be characterized by a multiplicity of human languages. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, it shall be done away. Just as in the case of tongues, Paul is not saying that all human knowledge will be removed from the earth. He's referring to miraculous knowledge, not learned from ordinary sources, but given directly as a manifestation of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. During the first century, there were no schools set up to teach knowledge of God's word. The need to receive knowledge direct from God would not persist throughout the entire age. Therefore, the charismata of knowledge was also a temporary bestowal. Paul began this discussion of his more excellent way by using himself as an example and therefore setting his continuing words in the time of his writing of the letter. Thus, he is speaking of his own time period when he says, For we... Christians of Paul's day know in part and we prophesy in part. These were the childhood days of the church. God had used the miraculous charismata to impart partial knowledge of his ways and his word. Paul was saying, we in this present day do not have full knowledge of all that God will eventually reveal. Someday the church will be mature, then complete knowledge will be available. We do not happen to be living in the days of the mature church. But when that which is perfect, teleon, is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Paul is thinking of the maturing of the church and of the status of that one body when such maturity has come. The Greek word teleion does not mean perfect as we use the word today. 
The Greek language has no equivalent to our word perfect. Teleon means mature, complete, or having reached the goal for which it was designed. Therefore, Paul is speaking of the coming of church adulthood. When maturity has come, the things of infancy will be taken away. When would the church reach maturity? That could only happen after the New Testament was completed. God's entire word must be available before the church that is nourished by it can reach the goal for which it was designed. So maturity came sometime after the first century. When comparing the permanency of charity to the temporary nature of the childish and immature gifts of the church's infancy, he says, For we now know in part, and we now prophesy in part. But when that stage of church maturity, which is perfect, complete and full grown, is come, then that which is in part, those infant gifts which we have in this day, shall be done away. The apostle to the Gentiles then goes on to use his own lifestyle and his own life cycle as a type of the growing stages of the church. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. In the early years of his life, Paul was a child, and he had all the characteristics and habits of a child. He spoke in an immature way, using baby talk rather than mature conversation. Paul is referring to the Corinthians' highly coveted gift of tongues as baby talk. As a child, Paul could not understand things as completely as he could as an adult. His thought processes were childish, and he was unable to think in the same logical way as does an adult. But this stage of his life did not last forever. Paul grew into a man. He reached maturity. He became, in the sense of teleon, perfect. When such maturity had been reached, he put away, in the same way that tongues shall cease of themselves, the things of his childhood. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation. For the Bible stands. This program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast. Post Office Box 690008. San Antonio, Texas, 78269.